Hello and welcome to New Deal Radio, a weekly podcast created by the New Deal Group and New Deal Political Action Committee. You can reach us at newdealnow.org and you can reach me, Robert Lucero, your humble host on New Deal Radio at robert at newdealgroup.com. To share our podcast with your friends, please tell them to look up New Deal Now or go to newdealnow.org. Please contact your representatives in Congress to get them to sponsor H.R. 6422, the call for a national infrastructure bank, the beginning of a real economic turnaround centered on New Deal policies for today. Hello and welcome to New Deal Radio. Today is Sunday, May 31st, 2020. A very uh, excited and heightened weekend in America and in uh, the um, specific cities too, like Minneapolis, of course, the center of what happened to uh, George Floyd, who was executed essentially on the street by the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, by four officers, uh, one in particular, but uh, three others who were complacent. Um, the uh, There's a lot of details that everyone's getting from whatever news they turn to, so I won't go into some of those details. What I wanted to use today's time, if you'll allow me, uh, to do is to storytell a little bit from the standpoint of my own experience as an organizer since 1993. Um, I am uh, from Los Angeles. In 1992 was the scene of the Los Angeles riots. I was not yet involved in politics, but um, I had just started to get serious about college in 1992. So I started to get more serious about ideas at that point. Uh, And I met a young man in 1993 in my biology class at a community college here in Southern California who was active in the 1992 presidential campaign of an independent Democrat, Lyndon LaRouche, who at the time was in prison. Uh, And if you just take the position that this gentleman had and the supporters of Mr. LaRouche, they said that Mr. LaRouche was a political prisoner. They said that um, the uh, riots in L.A. were uh, guided by a lot of, uh, they called them police agents or agent provocateurs, So I was intrigued by a number of things they were saying at the time, and uh, particularly about this question of, well, was LaRouche a political prisoner or not? Um, I determined in 1993, while he was still in prison, that he was, in fact, a political prisoner, a position I uh, continue to hold to this day. Um, In uh, the summer of 1993, I decided to become a a full-time organizer with their campaign, And I joined the specific campaign in August of 1993 of Nancy Spanis, who was an independent Democrat running for governor of Virginia. So that was my first organizing experience in the South, uh, Virginia. I was in Southern Virginia. I was in the Tidewater area, which um, is a very interesting place given the uh, presence of the uh, military. There's a uh, large naval facility to this day that's still there, uh, one of the largest ones in the country that's uh, survived all the closures since the end of the Cold War. Um, but it was my the beginning of 
a, a, a kind of career in community organizing that I recently thought about in terms of the man hours involved in what I was doing. And it approached um, 90,000 man hours that I spent in uh, community organizing, which is a term that a lot more people became familiar with after our last president, Barack Obama, the community organizer in chief. But I can say that um, the stories that I could share um, would definitely uh, hold their own uh, against uh, up against many community organizers. And um, frankly, the work that we did in that organization from the time the time of the, the early '90s to 2008 or so, when I believe uh, Mr. Larouche kind of started to uh, fade off and lose his ability to judge certain things, uh, we we have. Um, quite a uh, uh, some stories to tell. I had an exit interview in 2008 uh, when I was working for the Democratic Party of California <clears throat> with the then um, chairman of the LA County Democratic Party and a man who went on to be the state chair of the party, Eric Bauman, uh, who was now uh, not in the favor of the Democratic Party anymore, but at the time he was known to be one of the most uh, aggressive old school organizers in the United States. And he said to me, you know, look, the experiences you had um, in that organization um, are unlike any, any, they're very unique. You know, it's something that he encouraged me to take pride in. So I own that uh, time of my life and I'm happy to ever speak about it through emails or phone calls to me. Uh, And you can reach me, as I've said before, on the website, the um, New Deal Political Action Committee dot com or through newdealnow.org. So I just wanted to say a few things about where we stand um, because we really need to think about where we go from here. I'm not going to get into a lot of the things that people have already been discussing on the news or in social media fora. I think that what I can bring to the table is a specific experience that creates a certain kind of specific lens uh, and um, may help to uh, think f- for leaders, not just in positions of, of influence or power, but other people, community leaders, to think about what we can do going forward. So um, with that said, what I wanted to talk about is we're in a time that's riddled with paradox. You have a lot of things that are straightforward, like the question of racism and uh, police brutality in the case of George Floyd straightforward and complicated, specifically racist and universal, systematic and more recent outrage and complacency. So certain things that sound like you got to take a side. Are you outraged? Are you complacent? Do you think this is straightforward? Do you think it's complicated? I would start by saying to you that one of our biggest problems culturally since the 1960s in particular is that we've had more and more of a problem in dealing with the nuances in situations, dealing with resolving paradoxes. So, for example, here you are, it's the year 2020, and we're essentially looking at a a, a spring and summer that mirrors more uh, more and more 1968. Now, we certainly don't have a uh, Democratic Party in the kind of shape it was in in 1968, meaning having a viable candidate like Robert Kennedy uh, having an outgoing president who had done some good, like uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, having a uh, 
a continued presence of the New Deal and the New Frontier in the Democratic Party and the kind of strength that it existed then, and having a civil rights movement in the early part of 1968. Um, it w- could be argued, of course, that part of the problem in 1968 was that the civil rights movement was splintering, right? If you ever look at the last few years of Dr. King's life after 1965, um, what ended up being the last few years of his life, he had a really rough time um, in his own circles, among his own uh, people, northern preachers, for example, in Chicago, people who didn't understand why he was shaking things up in Chicago. Uh, and of course, as it's very important to reflect on when he was killed, he was involved in a campaign on economic justice, the sanitation workers striking in um, in, in Tennessee. So... Um, Yeah, the specifics of 1968 and today are not the same. However, I would say that two years ago in 2018, when we had the first episodes of New Deal Radio, that was essentially the discussion was we were talking in the spring, April, May and June uh, about the 50 year anniversaries of the 50 year markers of these tragic and tumultuous events in that year, 1968 the assassination of Dr. King, um, and then the riots after that, riots and looting, uh, which I believe were, were unprecedented in our history. Um, and if I'm correct, the riots and looting that have occurred over the last couple of days have not been as widespread as uh, they have been since 1968. Um, <clears throat> in terms of having you know major, major cities all across the country uh, dealing with this kind of situation. Now, again, there's a lot of things people are hearing online. I'm not trying to uh, dispute or side on one side or the other about things like, for example, uh, the the police agents or the provocateurs that have been involved in setting fires to cars or the the man that was caught on videotape, video camera, um, busting the windows of the auto zone in Minneapolis at the very beginning, who clearly looks like uh, a police officer um, and... uh, so there's a lot of details like this that um, are being discussed that I uh, just will put to the side for the moment. And um, the, you know, the only thing I will say about that is, is you definitely want to look out for that, meaning you definitely want to investigate this question of people who come in and take advantage of the situation and try to uh, blow things up even further. Some of them may be connected to uh, groups that want to just foment chaos. Um, but you have to separate that from this question of specifically African-American men. So let's take a very big issue and let's hone it in on African-American men. I'm a man of Chicano background, you know, the L.A. Uh, Mexican-Americans, um, and uh, we're a broad group. Many of us have roots that go back uh, into the 19th century in Southern California or the West, and other people are newer to the United States, but we're all uh, Chicanos, Latinos in L.A. Um, and then you have other populations here, including uh, the African-American population. So let's just talk about, to me, let's talk about African-American men and uh, let's say the last hundred years. Um, and let's say the last hundred years in California. Um, <clears throat> we have had... Uh, a very, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, you had a small migration into California of African Americans, but it really exploded during the Depression and then later on during the Second World War mobilization. Uh, and you had industry here, 
And you had, for the first time, really, across the country in the North and in the West, um, the potential for uh, African Americans to realize the, you know, middle class American dream. Yes, racism existed in, uh, in communities and in institutions. There's no doubt. But you had uh, essentially, if you take, for example, you look at what uh, John Lewis used to say about his his uh, life in the South versus some of his relatives' lives in the North. They were showing up with brand new cars, and they would go to. Uh, you know, integrated facilities uh, up in the north. And again, it wasn't pie in the sky for sure. But there was a certain path, especially after World War II, that was possible in terms of ending Jim Crow, creating a certain kind of uh, equality that really centered around economics. So interstate commerce is where the Freedom Rides found their you could say loophole or their opening for pushing the issue of um, making good on what the Supreme Court had decided in Brown versus Board. So <clears throat> economics is constantly tied to the issue of institutionalized racism, of uh, uh, not just de facto racism, but de jure racism, right? Uh, so they began to to make this de jure racism crumble, in, including under a Supreme Court that had seen the New Deal and had seen World War II and had seen who these veterans were of World War II and began to side with the uh, uh, rights of, of man uh, versus the, the rights of our heritage or our way of life in the South, right? Um, and, and by the way, I want to mention I, my dog is outside. There's some noises around. So again, pardon the rough nature of this uh, this episode. Um, trying our best here uh, during this uh, shutdown and working from home and all that. So, um, but back to the the, the question of uh, labor and uh, and the African American male. And I want to I want to really talk about this because, you know, yes, I mean, in my view, more. Uh, African-American individuals should be in leadership positions in all kinds of organizations, whether it's the county Democratic Party, the state Democratic Party, candidates for office. I I think there is essentially a history of these folks having in their culture some of the most profound uh, developments of the essentially organic intelligentsia of the United States. You know, we tend to think of... uh, the tinkerer as the great scientist in U.S. history over the last, uh, you know, since Ben Franklin, but particularly during the uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution or going back to the development of the, of the Colt uh, um, uh, pistol, right? <laughs> Not a very big gun person. But, you know, you think of the way in which we, we had people tinkering, and this is this American tradition of tinkering and science and Edison and Ford. But you also have, from the time of the American Revolution through Frederick Douglass, through the uh, the developments in the South of intellectual networks around uh, Booker T. Washington and then the uh, Harlem Renaissance, all these things that I'm not going to say I'm an expert on, but you understand there's, an, there's a tradition, an, an American intellectual tradition that is essentially unbroken coming out of the antebellum United States. You're hard-pressed to find any other continuous intellectual tradition. What's the intellectual tradition of Philadelphia? Well, it 
it kind of suffered quite a bit because you had Ben Franklin and his networks that were uh, coming out of the early uh, 18th century, but a lot of it petered out in the late 19th century. And, you know, Philadelphia uh, sort of slipped into this typical sort of working class, working class bloke uh, town, right, um, in, the, in the mid to the late uh, 20th century. Um, what happened to New York's intelligentsia? Well, a lot, you know, a lot happened to it, uh, particularly the, the, the counterculture of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, same thing happened in California, right? So, but also what you have is you have, you know, if you compare to me, sometimes you compare white and black. Well, black in particular has a continuous history that goes back pre-revolution and continues through the Civil War period into the 20th century, into the current period, and there's almost nothing else like it because white is this nebulous group of many different people from many different actual backgrounds. I've said it before, but I'll say it again, that a white person has a, uh, a background that goes back to the Mayflower is a, is a small group of people. It's a minority. The background of people that, have a, that, are, that are white who are either of Russian descent, Jewish descent, of German descent, of, of Irish, Italian, uh, Spanish. What is that? That's about six to seven different cultures and then about four different ones that come out of what we call Great Britain none of which consider themselves to be the same. So white is a, a political construct we created, whereas the, the black population in the United States is a very specific group or um, a specific uh, uh, cultural tradition that is a, a precious part of our national intelligentsia, the, uh, the, Amer- the American intellectual tradition. So this has been under constant attack, whether from the Justice Department, uh, through other avenues culturally, you know, way too much to get into here, you know, and um, work that some of my collaborators, previous collaborators from the uh, LaRouche organization have done on the, the real roots of the, you know, what people call the counterculture in the United States, which is a whole other issue, a huge one in the 20th century mainly out of the 50s and 60s, but even before that, uh, in terms of this, this first round of attacks around the turn of the century, um, attacking the, the American intellectual tradition of Frederick Douglass and his followers or um, other folks who were active in the um, Harlem Renaissance um, or people who were out of the South, like uh, Booker T. Washington or, or Dr. George Washington Carver, some of the, the initiatives and, and, and movements they were a part of um, so there's a lot there, but getting back to what we have had a handle on in the recent past is this question of, as a friend of mine likes to say, full employment for all black men. What if you just take that as uh, an issue you want to commit yourself to? Why don't we have more members of the state legislatures or the Black Caucus in Congress say, we need full employment for all black men. I'm not saying that's all we have to do, but what if we said that? Okay, what if we said we're not going to move until we make this breakthrough? Um, now, we have a bill in Congress, House Resolution 6422, that is rich with potential. It started off as a $4 trillion infrastructure bank. That's what the bill calls for in the current Congress. Um, of course, COVID-19 interrupted any real debate in person on this bill, but we're 
there's a movement that I'm happy to be associated with that's calling for this bill, organizing for this bill. Um, there's a couple of co-sponsors at this point, but we want to get more. Now, what can we do with a, a national infrastructure bank? Well, we can put to work 25 to uh, 40 million people right away. Um, that would begin to solve our profound economic crisis. We could even take people who, uh, I was thinking about this yesterday, you may disagree with this, but there's people who were arrested yesterday in Los Angeles, in other parts of the country, who are either in jail today or are facing charges they got to come back to court for. What if we said to these people, listen, what you did in uh, breaking into this business and stealing was wrong, illegal, etc. What we'd like to offer you is the chance to join this public works project to get trained as part of a uh, probation uh, for what you did. And coming out of that, you're going to learn a skill. You're going to get paid. You're actually going to turn your life around, right? This, to me, is not a matter of, 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 of punishment. More, it's, It will be, but it's, it's more of an, an admission that the preconditions before COVID-19 and before the killing of George Floyd, the preconditions were people were thrown to the scrap heap. They were underemployed, misemployed, okay? We have had a, a post-productive economy for far too long. It's really reaching the point of being absolutely ridiculous. And this is really the key issue if you want to understand why, if you're even asking yourself this question, why 50 years after 1968, 50 years after uh, Marvin Gaye, you know, I was listening this morning to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, his album from 1971. Why is it that 49 years after the release of that album, we're dealing with the exact same things? I think people really need to think about that. I think most people, there's people who are saying, well, I was here during that time. Well, honestly, I, I, I would be a little ashamed to admit that in a certain, certain sense, which is, wow, okay, that is most boomers were here for that period of time. So what happened? You're, you know, your generation has been in power for the last, let's say, 30 years. Let's say from the time Bill Clinton took, took power to the present. That's sort of the accepted time. So 28 years, right? What's happened? Well, state legislatures were also under their influence in other places, other institutions during the 70s and 80s. There was a sort of march through the institutions, as we've said before. Well, what, what has happened? So this isn't to blame. It's to reflect. It's to say, wow, what did we get wrong for so long that we have to change now? Right? And again, like I was trying to set up before, it's not a matter of giving people jobs. Well, let me give you something. No, no one's asking to be given something. Right. We, we in terms of the what the American system really is and what the potential is with this national infrastructure bank is we're essentially making good on some of the requests in the early 60s. For example, my favorite sign at the marches in 1963 at the March on Washington and other places was simply I'm a man. It was I'm a man. Uh, there was a preacher, uh, Reverend Bevel, who married uh, Diane Nash. Uh, who was a, a, a famous organizer with Dr. King in Alabama. Uh, he was from, I believe, Mississippi. And um, his, uh, he would say, uh, speaking of man is talking about male and female man, right? Um, so, you know, the idea is uh, there's a universal issue when it comes to man 
or mankind as a species. We're created equal in that we're all creative beings. We're created equal in that we all represent spiritually a connection to a creator, whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, or believe some other origin of the universe. There's a certain kind of equal potential of the action of being a human being. It's a creative action. It's artistic. It's creative. It's scientific. Right? It's philosophical. So those are the, the great things that come out of the potential realized in uh, various aspects of our, of our better times, whether, excuse me, certain better policies in science in the 19th century, um, certain policies, if you actually break down what the New Deal did, not just in terms of public works, but also in terms of supporting artists, the potential of each individual person. That was what the civil rights movement in the early 60s was trying to realize, a movement that came out of the 50s, a movement that inspired through the uh, February 1st, 1960, Greensboro sit-in at Wool- at the Woolworth uh, lunch counter. Th- this was the origins of, of the movement. It changed, right? It changed in the late 60s. Uh, that's too much to get into right now. But the issue is what we've we had since the seven throughout the 70s and 80s, so my lifetime into the 90s, is you've had a an increasing move toward uh, you know mediocrity, uh, apologies for Wall Street, uh, going along with the development of the derivatives markets, which blew out in 1998 with the long-term capital management blowout, uh, and then, of course, the uh, Great Recession and the blowout of 2008, we have been piling on this disaster, uh, only holding up this uh, private equity-based, uh, pure finance-based economy. You know, who, who are the real uh, titans of our country now? It's, you know, Jamie Dimon and the tech guys. But fundamentally, even when it comes to somebody like... Um, the world's most famous uh, middleman, uh, the uh, the leader of Amazon. Um, wh- what is this? This is the post-industrial, post-productive fantasy economy. It's all coming down. So when you look, you look at the TV and you say, "Wow, we've had this COVID nineteen shutdown. We've had these. Uh, we, now we have these these protests turning into looting. Uh, wh- what's going on? Well, the whole thing has proved itself to be." A hollow fraud. And the question is, what are we going to do to deal with it? Our answer is a new deal, a modern new deal now. It starts with this infrastructure bill, 6422, and there can be an entire uh, suite of bills that can be put together. We have uh, plenty of people in Congress who can act on this. I'll tell you one of my, uh, the thing that really burns me is it's not Trump and it's not McConnell and these guys who are obvious cases uh, who need to straighten things out. But it's people in the Democratic Party. I'm a Democrat, but it's people in the Democratic Party who sit there and complain, right? Uh, the most famous one to me was, um, that got me, was Janice Hahn. When she left her congressional seat in uh, uh, about six years ago or so, and what she said was to the media, I, I just, it's, it's just too hard to, to deal with the partisanship here in Washington, you know, I, I basically can't take it. So not only does she resign, um, she comes back to L.A. to take up some other space in another elected office here. You have this rotating chair ever since the the, the rotating chairs ever since um, term, term limits started in California, 
where you see some guy who was a state senator and now he's a, uh, a an insurance commissioner, uh, or uh, you have people who go from state rep to uh, the uh, county supervisors and now they want to be mayor. And it's just this rotating thing. Or maybe they'll go back down to mayor the way Jerry Brown did. Uh, it's a game, right? It's a game. Rather than saying, I'm in Congress, I'm going to go on... I'm going to go on a, 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 a crusade is a, a hard word to use, but you know I'm going to I'm going to swear that I'm not going to do anything but but eat, drink, breathe, sleep a new deal. You know, It'll, even Alexander Ocasio Cortez. I love the way she got elected. I love the fact that she went out there and organized up a storm in New York and got elected and 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 just crushed what the Democratic Party thought was their automatic machine. I loved that. But she gets on Twitter or other places and complains about Trump. And I said, look, or complains about what Jeff Bezos and others have done since COVID-19 broke out in making record numbers of profits. I say, look, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says Congress shall regulate commerce. It's Congress's job to get up there and, and change the laws when it comes to commerce. Do that. Fight for that. Even if it's a losing battle, fight for it. You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln was famous for being uh, a one-term congressman because what did he do? He opposed the the, the uh, setup of the Mexican War. He uh, stood up and gave a speech in Congress asking President Polk to show Congress, to show Congressman uh, Abraham Lincoln from Illinois the spot. This is an old surveyor, right? Abraham Lincoln's a, a, a surveyor. He knew how uh, surveying and geography worked. He said, give me the coordinates. Show me the precise spot and I'll find it of where the Mexicans came in to the United States and threatened our sovereignty. Show me the spot. Of course, you know, his resolution to, to have that uh, was, was, was voted down and um, he voted against the Mexican War but never voted against providing provisions for the troops, right? Um, <clears throat> a very, that is 100% patriotic. I, I, I would ask every Republican congressman to support what, Abraham Lincoln did as a congressman right there. Would they do that? I don't know. But again, the point is, these elected officials get in office and complain about what they can't do. This is part of our problem. This destruction is at their doorstep. So how do we get out of this? Let's start to change it now. The New Deal is a reference point. It's not perfect, but it's a reference point for what we did in the past and we can do again now. So uh, that's the beginning of a bit of a, of a spiel, a bit of a storytelling, and um, hopefully you can see from that that I have more I could tell, uh, and I will uh, hopefully hear from some of you through questions uh, about uh, what we can talk about in future episodes regarding the last uh, 50 years and what we can do in the crisis that we're in now. An unprecedented crisis in, all, in just all respects, but it's what we've been sweeping under the rug for far too long. Thank you for listening to New Deal Radio, a weekly podcast brought to you by the New Deal Group. Please visit us at newdealnow.org and feel free to contact me directly, robert at newdealgroup.com. Happy days are here again.